when I evoke the warrior stance, it comes from my Buddhist lineage, which is stand with your back straight, your shoulders square, your hands at your side, your arms, your, your, your legs shoulder length apart, your palms open, not clenched in a fist, and your heart completely exposed. Thanks for pressing play. That voice you just heard is Jerry Colonna, and he's the man that Wired Magazine calls the CEO Whisperer. And this is Christopher Lockhead, Follow Your Different. We're the podcast for people who value real, different conversations, dialogues that sit at the center of how to design a legendary business and a legendary life. We're sponsored by Oracle NetSuite. NetSuite is the platform for growth for entrepreneurial businesses. Learn how to turbocharge the growth of your business today at netsuite.com slash different. And as a listener of this podcast, our friends at NetSuite are offering you a free one-hour growth review with an expert in your industry. Check out netsuite.com slash different. Now for this episode, put on your big girl or your big boy pants because uh, this is Jerry Colonna. This is a conversation about what Jerry calls radical self-inquiry because Jerry believes that better human beings make better leaders. And it's a very big, very fun, deep adult conversation about growing up, about what it takes to become a warrior leader. And at the same time, have what Jerry calls a soft, open heart. And we dig deep into Jerry's brand new book, Reboot. And I'll tell you, when his PR people sent me this book and I cracked it open, I couldn't believe it. This is a very powerful book. It's deeply personal. It's intimate. And it's a book that will make you examine yourself in a powerful way. And I think, frankly, it's an instant classic. Go to Lockhead.com to check out the show notes for this episode and grab the key takeaways. Learn more about Jerry and his book. Now, as Jerry would say, the bullshit stops here. So, hey-ho, let's go. Can I say what's on my mind off the top to you? I think that you have done a very rare thing. Hmm. You have written a book that really, to the best of my knowledge, has never been written and absolutely needed to get written. Oh, wow. Thank you. Now you're going to make me cry right away. Um. This, this, I mean, look at my copy. Look, at, look, at, <laughs> look, look, look. I mean, I want to do a 10 part series conversation with you, Jerry, and unpack every fucking word. Wow. It's, you have written a book, you have written, um, you're with Harper Collins, are you not? I am. Here's, here's the hardcover copy. Uh, just hot off the presses. I just got a hundred copies officially out in a few weeks, but uh, yeah. They so did, did Hollis book. publish this book? Hollis published it. So she published my first book as well. And oh. um, I remember when, you know, when, when we were sort of reviewing sort of who to go with and this and that, one of the things she said to us, and it certainly spoke to me, I think it spoke to my co-authors, was 
she only wants to publish classics and it she felt like we had a chance at writing one of those ah and when i cracked open your book i was i don't even know if i was two pages in i had read the table of contents and i started into the first chapter Mm. and i just sort of smiled to myself Mm. about hollis (laughs) hollis I, I, I don't know about Play Bigger. That's not for me to judge and, you know, mm. probably not. But this, mm. holy fuck, Jerry, you have written an extraordinary piece of work here, my friend. Thank you Thank for you. this book. Thank you. Um, uh, I wrote the book that the only book I could write because anything else would have been bullshit. And I am, I'm older than you, my friend, by a few years, 55. And I am too fucking old. And I have too many scars to bullshit my way through life anymore. And, um, you know, I was really lucky because Hollis and the folks at HarperCollins offered me a contract before we even knew what I was going to write about. And I was just sort of like, hold on, you may not like it. <laughs> but, this is not going to be the seven steps to building a company. No, 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 no. And it's not going to be a bullshit, like pay on to crushing it and to hustling. And, you know, what do they call it now? Hustle porn. Um, oh, don't even get me started. I, I, I'm trying to reform myself from talking about how much I hate that shit. But I'll just say... I wrote a, a blog post and did a solo episode called The Seven Reasons to Fuck Hustle. That, all that <laughs> stuff makes right. me crazy, but I'll just, I'll just leave right. it there because I could go off. <laughs> right. I mean, it, it, you, know, um, uh, you know, I tell the story um, of this moment of realization when I'm in uh, my agent's office, Jim Levine, but, but with Hollis, and, and it dawns on me that they actually want me to show up and be real and be me. And, um, you know, as you can, cause you, you've read the book carefully. Um, the, the experience of actually being me and showing up was something I longed for since I was a kid and to find the words and to find it welcomed and to see, and to see a reaction, you know, you holding up a, uh, a dog eared copy, you know, with, with post-it notes, you know, exactly. You know, I, I you know, I, I have a, a couple of dear friends, but, but one is, a, you know, he, yeah. So it's completely marked up and, and, and highlighted and you have no idea that is what I strove to do because here's the thing. I wrote the book that I want, I needed to read 20 years ago. Um, and, and I, you know, I have a dear friend who is, is a black woman. Um, and she read the galley, the same copy that you have. And she sent me a picture of her dog-eared copy all. And that makes me, cause it's a completely different meatbag experience that she has as a person, as a human being. And at the same time, there's a connection there. So anyway, I, I'm really moved by your copy. Fucking A, Jerry, you wrote, so let's just get into it. So the, sure. uh, 
can I, this may be a little unorthodox, but I, um, let me get to the spot in the book. Can I, um, can I read you a section of your book? Sure. So this, it looks like it's on page 45. I don't know if that'll be on the final version or not, but it's on my version. Anyway, it's towards the beginning of the book and it, and you write, our co-founder has quit. Our investors pull funding. Our number one customer returns the product because it simply doesn't work. Our spouse gives up on us. Our board fires us. Such are the moments to stare deeply into our own experience. Who are we? What are we made of? What conditions are our lives in? And radically as important, how have we been complicit in creating the conditions we so steadfastly declare we do not want? From that place, the warrior leader emerges. Amen. Holy fuck, Jerry. Can you, can you dig into this one for me? Where, where, where does this come from and what does this, uh, well, it comes from, it comes from life, right? I mean, every one of those instances are not some theoretical experience, but either one of those things happened to me or to a client that I have worked with. Every one of those experiences, including walking in and finding out that the product doesn't work, every one of those things has happened. And that's the opportunity to stare deeply into that abyss and say, what the fuck am I made out of? What have I chosen? What has happened? But to the, to the larger point, in what ways have I been complicit in creating these conditions I say I don't want? And that, you know, that's a question that I, that when my therapist first put that question to me, it pissed me off because I don't want, or I did not want to sort of look at my life and say that I somehow um, was participating in all this stuff. It's much easier to look at the world and say, um, why are you doing this to me? Why is this happening to me? But that's uninteresting. It's also so easy for us to blame others, right? Like, the asshole running engineering or the asshole on our board or the fucking customer who said they were going to buy and didn't and end, end, end. Right. Right. And I got to well, tell you, and of course the theme runs throughout the book. Um, it's been haunting me since I read it, mm. but and I, this may be an inappropriate use of the word haunt, Jerry. Mm. It's been haunting me in the most fantastically enjoyable way. Like, what am I complicit in, in sort of the shit in my life that doesn't work? And if you take the position that I think is the position, I'll use this word on purpose, of power, which mm -hmm. is I'm responsible for my life, right? Mm -hmm. You talk about Campbell. I mean, there's so much greatness, right? If, so if we take that position, right or wrong, it's, just, it's a very empowering position. I'm responsible for everything in my life, everything, even mm -hmm. all the worst shit when I get sick, when, when bad shit happens, when somebody dies, et cetera, et cetera, it's my life, right? So when we take that position, but then we say, okay, there's shit in my life that I don't want and that shit persists. Mm. And if that shit persists, then the Jerry question, 
how am I complicit in creating the shit or allowing the shit or however you want to think about it that I say I don't want, that I say I'm trying to overcome, that I say I, I want, whatever it is, however you think about it, how am I complicit in this thing persisting in my life? It's like, it's fucking great. Mm, well, thank you. But I want to, I want to unpack the first half of that question because I chose the word complicit purposefully and it's very different than the word responsible. And I'm going to parse this because I think this is really important because, you know, as I, as I often say, when you start to unpack your life, when you take the blue pill and you start to see the matrix, one of the first impulses to take is to feel guilty. Is to, is to start to uh, fire off the self-criticism. Stop right there. Stop right there. So the word complicit is really important. You are an accomplice. You are not responsible. And the difference there is really important because what happens is in that complicitness, what we're doing is our unconscious, as, as Joseph Campbell, as Carl Jung said, until we make the unconscious conscious, it will direct our lives and we will call it fate. Why can I just, is, can I just so, pause you there, Hanson? Yeah. Can you say yeah. that again for me, please? Sure. Until we make the unconscious conscious, it will direct our lives and you will call it fate. Yes. Okay. So it's the same kind of notion. It's like, why does this always happen to me? Why are these people always doing this to me? Why does my life suck? I sit there Buddha-like and I go, interesting. How have you been complicit in creating those conditions? Not responsible but going along with. And then the second piece is equally important. You say you don't want that happening in your life, and yet the pattern repeats itself again and again and again. So there's a whole stream that flows from that. But one of the unlocking questions there is to simply say, well, how have these conditions served you? Because we get a payoff for it, don't we? That which persists, persists because it delivers something. Yes. Otherwise, we'd get rid of it. Otherwise, we'd get... That's right. If there's a pebble in your shoe and it hurts when you step, you are going to stop and shake that pebble out of your shoe, right? (laughs) Unless at some unconscious level, you think you deserve the pebble. The pebble feels familiar. To be without the pebble feels scary. So we might maintain structures that are not in our best interest because they serve this sort of larger wish for love, safety, and belonging. And thus we stay in abusive or relationships that don't work. Or we, or, 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 yeah, if we, we, we talk about the work environments, we seek out those environments that feel familiar because safety trumps comfort. Safety trumps comfort. Safety trumps comfort. It trumps happiness. It trumps everything. Ah, this is familiar. This is safe. I may feel like shit, but at least I know what it looks like. This is comfortable. I love it. Now I want to go to the title. Mm. Um, 
So, you know, Reboot's a good title for the book, for sure. The subtitle, though, um, is, is maybe a little bit more provocative. Leadership and the Art of Growing Up. Mm. So here's Jerry Colonna, quote unquote, the CEO whisperer. You're the man. Okay, great. Mm. You're writing a business book, supposedly, right? Mm. Supposedly. Mm. And on the cover, you say this thing's about growing up. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> and of course, it, 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 I assume you want to signal to the reader, hey, uh, and I, I want to make sure I get it exactly the way you uh, you call it. You say you, radical self inquiry mm. that this is a book about growing up, and that better humans make better leaders, and that's why this book is actually about radical self inquiry. And so the reason I said what I said off the top about this is the book that's never been written. I have not heard of a quote business book that is like the Zen art of being a human being in a business context book. Mm. Mm. Well, you know, you probably not had a business book where the foreword was written by a Buddhist teacher named Sharon Salzberg either. Um, not that I can remember. <laughs> or one that starts off with a Buddhist prayer for equanimity. Um, here's the issue. Um, Every single day I encounter suffering. Every single day. I can't tell you the number of times I have a first phone call and the person is just shaking with anxiety and fear and terror and pain. And they're in tears inside of minutes. And when I think about uh, what they're carrying one of the things that they're carrying is just the difficulty associated with leading and all of the projected expectations and qualities that we're supposed to have and the the innumerable ways in which we fall short. And the result is that uh, leaders, those who hold positional power implicitly or explicitly, when they do not do their work, They perpetuate violence to themselves, violence to the communities, and violence to the planet because they have not known what to do, as my friend Parker Palmer says. Violence is what we do when we don't know what to do with our suffering. So Mm. if we we want – violence is what we do when we don't know what to do with our suffering. We hurt people. And people are hurting in business. I once got a phone call. I was on CNN a couple of years ago, and there's this piece about um, mental illness in Silicon Valley and the challenges around depression. And, and uh, it was a powerful segment. Uh, Lori Siegel uh, was a reporter. And at one point, I asked her a question, and she broke down into tears. Anyway, I got a phone call from the head of talent development at a very large software company. And she's like, we need you to come speak to the executives. And I said, what, what's going on? You're, you're a well-known company with, with like, you know, enlightened management. And she said that healthcare claims for mental health-related disorders for the children of their employees had been up 50% in the previous two years. 
Okay, these kids did not sign up to get their asses kicked in the workplace. They didn't sign up for this. And so I, I look at this, it's like, what kind of adult are you? What kind of adults are walking around perpetuating violence again and again and again? And what can we do to stop that? What does it it's mean? It's fascinating. It, you, you, know, you just look at how damaging to our aliveness so many work environments are, right? For one reason or another. And, you know, as a former executive, you look at the level of um, duplicity and, and passive aggressive, indirect grin fucking. And like, it's just, you know, and, 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 and you get to this place where you go, hey, man, I thought we agreed the enemy was out there. We want to go kick competitive ass. And no, we got all this craziness going on inside the company, right? And we, we go home at night and uh, need a half a bottle of Jack to, you know, deal with or the anger associated with working with all these quote assholes, right? There's, there's a lot of people who at one point or another have that shit going on in their career. Well, and, and, you know, uh, imagine if you will, our 20 year old versions of ourselves that are ourselves in our twenties. And they're looking out at the world at large and they're saying, fuck that. I don't want to be a part of that. The Game of Thrones that exists in most of these organizations, I don't, I, I'll have none of that. Or worse, I'll suck it up and I'll defer happiness so that I make enough money so that I can be okay. There's that group. And then there's the sort of 35 to 60-year-old folks who are silently suffering. What did Emerson say? The vast majority of men lead lives of quiet desperation. Why? Yeah, why? Why don't why? we just grow up? Yes. And the flip side is when we experience a work environment that, you know, look, human beings are human beings and there's going to be conflict and there's going to be bullshit and da, 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 to some degree. However, uh, those of us who are lucky enough to have been in a work environment where for the most part, it's, it's not that. For the most part, it's a true team and, the mo and, and we're going after it and we can move the fucking place and we can be thoughtful and we can debate and we can argue and we can get to a decision and we can take decisive action. We can make shit happen. And, and then we experience real success, like, like big time winning. When you, we, so when you experience the absence or, or maybe not the complete absence, but certainly in general, the absence of that and the presence of we're actually going to unify and go after this thing and try to do some legendary shit and hopefully have some fun and make a difference along the way. That by contrast is an extraordinary thing. And when you, once you've had it, you really don't ever want to live without it. Once, once, once you lead from that, as I call it, that warrior stance where you've got the strong back and the open heart and you just say to the world, you know, world do what you will with me. But fuck you. This is where I stand. This is who I am. And I don't have to be aggressive. I don't have to attack. But I get to be me. And now let's do some really good work. Let's make some magic. If we're doing a startup, let's call into being this most magical enterprise possible. Let's start a company from nothing but an idea. How magical is that?
uh, you know, and the, the great thing about entrepreneurship is it's, it's pure creation. And for many of us, you know, for some people, it's a way up in the world and Hey man, God bless you. For many of us, it's a way out mm. in the world. And for many of us, entrepreneurship um, is a way to bet on ourselves when no one else will. Uh, and entrepreneurship is a way for us to make a place in the world if we can't find one. Mm-hmm. And so there, there's so much inviting about it um, if we're willing, right? If, if uh, to be, I don't want to sound overly corny, but I'm sitting here with a Zen master, so I'll say it. If we're called to it, Jerry. <laughs> mm-hmm. Well, uh, yes, I'm perfectly comfortable with the notion of being called to it, you know, possibly. Uh, but, but the image that comes to mind is like, if we're willing to put our head up to the mouth of the demon who could bite our head off right at the neck and say to the demon, eat me if you wish, which is an old Buddhist tale I tell in the book. Um, if we're willing to do that, how glorious, how glorious, but it's scary. It is not for the faint of heart. That's for sure. And the thing that's incredible about this book is I've never read a quote unquote business book that is remotely close to this raw. Mm-hmm. I mean, you tell very real stories, very deeply personal stories. Uh, you, you take the reader through, was it the CEO of Intuit? What there's a CEO uh, in the book. You think of Etsy. That gets fired. Etsy. Etsy, excuse me. And, and, and the rawness and the realness of how you tell that story and what he needed to go through to deal with it and the decision to, you know, uh, uh, stand up and be a man and take his medicine and do it honorably or, or not. Right. And you reading things like that in the book, um, as a guy that's been in a lot of those meetings and faced, you know, similar decisions personally and been with others in similar situations, like you're, you're taking me in there, Jerry. Like it's the, there's no way you made that shit up there. You had to have experienced that to write that shit. And, <laughs> and rarely in a business book, does anybody have the courage, the fucking balls to tell that kind of story at that mm-hmm. level of rawness. And so mm-hmm. that leads me to a question about this theme you have of radical self inquiry. Mm. Well, uh, the connection there is really powerful. And, and, and let me put some flesh to the story a little bit. It's Chad Dickerson's story. And I have to be fortunate and honored to have been a witness to his transformation. And I'll quibble with you on one phrasing. I don't think he stood up like a man. I stood up. I think he stood up like a human. Fair, fair enough. <laughs> okay. And fair I think enough. he stood up and he stepped into his warrior status. And I think that the key was that he held himself with grace and dignity. Two words that are not fashionable, grace and dignity. And it was hard. And what I saw, and I tell that story because we did sit on the rooftop of Etsy in downtown Brooklyn. And we clinked glasses and we said, not bad considering. And that journey was powerful. Now, you, 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 you linked it to my 
term for radical self-inquiry. And very briefly, radical self-inquiry is a term I coined to describe the process of stripping away the bullshitting mask, all the personas that we carry. And it's really key that we do that with skill and compassion. Because guess what? Dropping the mask is scary. And those masks have kept us safe. But they are stultifying and calcifying. And ultimately, they choke us. And so using the stance of, I just had my ass kicked. What am I made of? What kind of adult am I called to be? I have a choice. I can perpetuate that violence onto the next person down the line. Or I can stand like a warrior and say, my sense of self is unshakable. My sense of worthiness is unshakable. You may punch me. Look, I, I box. You may punch me in the face. Okay? And it hurts to get punched in the face. My son does Muay Thai, and he came home from a training session with a gash that's like four inches long above his eye. You know, He's got a fight in a couple of weeks in Iowa. But you stand there, and not some bullshit machismo, I'm just going to take it, because that's just stupid. But you stand there with the heart and soul of grace and dignity and say, my sense of self is unshakable. Do with me what you will. Eat me if you wish. So let's go there. Um, and I'll relate it a little bit to an experience I had, and, and, and maybe you can help me understand it in a, a new or interesting way. So when I was the head of marketing at this company, Mercury, uh, we had an accounting scandal. We were part of the stock option backdating uh, stuff that went down, if you remember, in the early 2000s. I do remember. And in November, November 11th of 2005, if my memory serves me, um, as a result of an in, internal investigation that got triggered because of a uh, SEC investigation into our accounting, our CEO, CFO, and GC got shot on the same day. Mm. The stock went from 47 to 22, and the whole thing was in the shitter, and it was Q4, right? Mm. All of our competitors said they were going to, we were going out of business, tried to get all of our, our customers and people, and, you know, it was a fucking shit show. It was just like some of the scenarios you talk about in your book. Yeah. You know them very, very well. I know it well. And so the thing that I find fascinating about those sorts of very dramatic situations in business is um, who stands up and exhibits warrior spirit and produces massive results in the face of the most horrible conditions and can be counted on no matter what and is just extraordinary and who melts like snow in July. And, and many times in my experience, I'm, this is all a big question really. Um, In my experience, Jerry, um, if you're with people who maybe you haven't been in these kinds of situations before, it can be somewhat surprising who melts and who stands up. Uh, it's somewhat surprising to me the percentage of people that do melt. It seems mm. it feels high. Mm. And on the flip side, at Mercury, we had a lot of melters, but there was probably at the highest level about a hundred to maybe a hundred and fifty people who stood up in gigantic ways at a senior level. I'm not saying lots of other people didn't, but there were lots of salespeople who stood up, lots of engineers. But, you know, people with a more senior-like position, the top 100 
and 150 people. There was a whole bunch of them that stood up and did extraordinary things. Mm. And the company ultimately ended up getting acquired by HP for 55 bucks a share nine months later and conducting a giant restatement, yada, yada, yada. Anyway, here's, my, here's what all that leads me to, which is help me understand what you think makes the difference between being a person who shows up, who stands up, who produces results in the face of those kinds of situations you write about and you've been in, and the people who maybe look very talented, maybe are very smart, maybe have had good careers, but yet in those moments, they melt. Hmm. Well, it's hard for me to generalize across the board, but I'll, I'll try to make some connections. Um, what you're speaking about is a kind of resiliency that I would argue is not, in fact, that brittle resiliency, which breaks. So it's outwardly resilient uh, or initially resilient until something really hard happens. Um, I think that one of the qualities that, that folks, like the 150 folks that you identified, um, it probably exhibited is the ability to withstand um, the vagaries, the naturally occurring vagaries of life. Now, if I were to sort of unpack it uh, psychoanalytically, I might be able to find some common threads from childhood that it may include, for example, early loss, like profound loss. Um, when you were a kid, were you one of the one, 150? Absolutely. Okay. So hold on to that thought for a moment. Um, it was 2005. So it was 14 years ago, almost right. Um, you were in the middle of your career. I was, um, as it turned out, as a CMO, I was at the end. I had done two other CMO gigs. Uh -huh. and I was uh, 37 going on 38. And after Mercury, I was done doing that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, so, but you're at this sort of pinnacle moment, this pre-turning 40. Yes. Who am I? And, and possibly right afterwards, I mean, we can spend some time on this, possibly right afterwards, because, you know, my crucible moment was I was 38. This is not an accident, dude. Okay. And so there you are, arguably at the pinnacle moment. This is your third gig at the CMO slot. And Mercury at that point, prior to the stock scandal, was a high flyer. And you had participated in that. Did, were you part of the team who took it public? No, but I joined the company at sort of a seminal moment in that it was about 350, 380 million, someone there pushing towards four. Um, and it had become the category king in software quality testing. Right. And, you know, as you well know, um, there comes a point in every company's life where its current position becomes its biggest barrier to future growth. Right. And so on one hand, they designed and dominated a category, but at the same time, they were constrained. There were only so many QA engineers in the world and, you know, the, the category was only going to be what it was going to be. And so for the company to meet its aspirations, it had to extend past that category. And I was brought in to be one of the people to drive that. And as we did that, we sort of sparked the company onto a whole new growth pattern, designed a new category, 
and away we went. And it was, so, you know, so, it was so, a hell, so a, you, a hell you, of a journey. You, you were a member of the team that, that, that really helped transform and take everything to the next level. And so there's some resiliency uh, there. So where does your resilience come from? Well, it's fascinating because the minute you said early loss, the first thing that popped into my head was, hmm, that's funny. I didn't have any early loss. And then I went, hey, wait a minute, you dumbass. When you're five fucking years old and your parents get divorced, that's a fucking loss. Bingo. (laughs) So hold that. Hold that thought. Because as soon as I said it, I actually saw in your eyes that little flicker that you went through. And what that said to me is, oh, he went back far. And five is the age, right around the age in which those are early subroutines, those belief systems get laid down. And yeah, it's painful. It's scary. Who did you end up living with, mom or dad? Mom. And when did you see dad? Um, Typically every other weekend and sometimes on the off, on the week where we didn't have him, we might see him in an evening, but certainly every other weekend. And we would right. go camping with him every summer. And, and he was, partic- you know, he participated when the big shit, you know, when I was in the play or right. some baseball game or, you know, so he was, he was present. I mean, he wasn't there every day, but it wasn't like he just, he was gone. He was present. Absolutely. Right. Right. So, so, um, uh, how many siblings do you have? A younger sister uh, by a year. Right. So you became the man. Well, not only that, it's funny that you say that. Yes. And I was told to be. My grandfather, who I idolized, uh, uh, my mother's mom's dad, mom's dad, mom's dad. Uh, when this happened, here's what I know. He said something to me. I don't know what the fuck he said. Here's what I heard. What I heard at five years old from my grandfather, who I idolized, was now that your father's gone, you're the man of the house and it's your job to take care of your mother and sister. I don't know what the fuck he said, Jerry, but that's what I heard. Mm. And I took it very seriously. Right. So I'm looking at you in the video and I'm seeing all the musical stuff over your shoulder. And uh, I'm thinking of Springsteen's Walk Like a Man. Okay. And here's the thing. Uh, You know, it, it matters what Grandpa said. But it matters more what you felt. And what you felt from this idealized model of adult maleness, otherwise known as grandpa, pop pop, whatever you called him. Granddad. Granddad. What you heard was a good man takes care. Yes. Right. A good man, as I write in the book, builds castles and slays dragons. Yes, sir. And saves and saves damsels in distress and princesses. <laughs> saves damsels in distress and princesses. And this is this is um, both a beautiful and powerful and life giving assignment, and a stultifying, challenging, frightening assignment for a five year old boy. And so. The memory came back because we started making the connection. I said, there's a loss that experience that can. And so let's pause right now. Let's not go down the bullshit Nietzschean path of that which does not kill me makes me stronger. 
Okay. That is not a prescription for life. That's the mistake people make when they read Nietzsche. What Nietzsche was actually saying was he was describing a truth. He wasn't prescribing a way to be. He wasn't telling people, go out and please experience loss. What he was describing was, what is it that happens to us? And so you ask the question, okay, what makes the difference between those who melted and those who withstood? And I would argue, who withstood, like Chad, with grace and dignity and strength and courage and embodied the best of adulthood. I'm making it as gender not neutral as I can in this moment. Who are we made of? What are we made of? Who are we? What is the timber of our character structure? And so there's that. And we blow a kiss and we forgive our parents for the losses. We are all wounded as children. The human condition is wounding. And this is a wounding. This loss was a wounding. But in those moments when you choose to melt or withstand, that's the moment where you can take the wound and turn it into something sacred. Because we never actually fully make the wound go away. We access it. It becomes the means by which we can grow. And that's what I think you and your colleagues went through. Yeah. And I will, uh, till the day you put me in a box, be fascinated by who withstands and who melts. Mm-hmm. I will always be fascinated by, and I love that you use this word crucible. Uh, my friend, uh, Dr. James Kelly wrote, you know, his book is about crucible moments. It's a very, very powerful word. You don't hear very much. So it's a, it's, it's an interesting choice of words. I will always be fascinated by when we are faced with crucible moments, why some of us stand up and some of us fall down, why sometimes I stand up and have sometimes fallen down. Uh, well, you may, you, you, I, I, I want to give a shout out to um, uh, Warren Bennis, from whom I got that word. Um, Warren Bennis is a brilliant uh, a leadership author, and he talks about crucible moments as the moments by which leaders are forged. And, he, and the crucible word is important because it evokes alchemy. It evokes uh, the transformation of lead into gold. Um, you look, you'd, you'd, you'd probably, if you haven't read him, you'd probably be interested in the work of Viktor Frankl, who asked the question. <laughs> <laughs> Are what, you kidding like, me, Jerry? Uh, okay. I read A Man's Search for Meaning. I think I was 14. Right. Yeah. Well, there you go. I mean, he asked the question, who survives? Yes. Yes. Right. And who survives are those with purpose? Logotherapy. Those, those powerful things, yes. It's, it's, it's the thing, uh, and, and you know, to, 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 to play it out, those who survive the worst that man has ever done, concentration camps, were those who were able to find deep within themselves the resilience that comes from having a sense of purpose. That's and I love that you have, here's what I believe. George Carlin called it the pussification of America, 
That's, <laughs> that's the time I believe we were living in, Jerry. And you're so tough. <laughs> well, and look, I'll, I'll leave it there. I just, I got t- 10 hours on that, but um, we just park it and you know, um, uh, the fact that you use phrases like radical self-inquiry, hmm. like like uh, courage, and the one that comes up over and over and over again, warrior, hmm. right? Um, and of course, as a, as a boxer, as a martial artist, you understand this phrase, warrior spirit. Hmm. And so having the courage in the context of pussification <laughs> to have a warrior discussion is, um, is part of why I think this is a book that had to get written. This is a very um, get fucking real with who you are if you want to be successful in business and life book. Hmm. Here's the problem I have with uh, uh, the standard... And I love George Carlin, um, but uh, the standard um, diatribes against what he would have called the pacification. Um, who's the toughest demon? Who's the toughest opponent? The one that lives in our head all the time. Yeah, there's no fighter who's fighting anybody. There's no warrior who's warring anybody other than right. themselves, right? right. If you listen to any right. martial artist after they retire. Right. The opponent was always me. So, so, so when I evoke the warrior stance, it comes from my Buddhist lineage, which is stand with your back straight, your shoulders square, your hands at your side, your arms, your, your, your legs shoulder length apart, your palms open, not clenched in a fist and your heart completely exposed. Tell me, tell me that that's a soft stance. Okay? Yes. That, that's, that's not uh, some weakened stance. It's, it's a strong back met with equal energy around the open heart. And so when I write openly and honestly in my book about my own travails, and lamentations, and the self-criticism, and all of that. That's me opening my rib cage and saying, here, do with me what you will. My back remains strong. I and to me, when you, when you lead from that, see the danger, we have to be careful, elders like you and I, we have to be careful, because we could be sending a message that uh, that to, to our younger folk, our younger brethren and sistren, that this is about some sort of false machismo. This is a deeper strength than that. This is the wisdom to know when to walk from a fight. This is um, to understand what is your work to do? What is your way to be in the world? Um, it's a powerful, it's a powerful image. Yes. And I've often said, um, the person who brushes our teeth every morning knows the truth about us. Yes. And that's the person we have to answer to. That's right. 
That's right. And if you're going to fuck somebody over, or you're going to lie, or you're, it, there may be ramifications. I hope there are. I don't want us to live in a consequence-free world. But the biggest ramification, unless you're that very rare psychopath who has no conscience, no true north, no sense of right and wrong, which the vast majority, of course, of human beings do have consciences, they do know right and wrong. That's right. Um, and so the people who fuck people over, the people who do bad things, they know. The person who brushes their teeth knows. That's right. And you can't run from you. <laughs> well, and, and, you know, I think, you know, that's your definition and I agree with it wholeheartedly of radical self-inquiry. It's like, it, there's no place you can hide anymore. And if you're willing to look that person in the mirror when you're, when they are brushing your teeth and to say, good job. Are yeah. you going to be kind today? Yes. Will you be strong today? Will you act from a place of integrity, even though yesterday you did not? And because you did not, you feel shame. And rather than masking that shame, you lean into your own mistakes, your own failings, and you say, you brush yourself off, just like we did when we played stickball in the streets of Brooklyn, and you call do-over. And you do it all over. And just to underscore your point, Jerry, mm. uh, I've become friends in the last few years with a guy named Will Little. Mm. And he's one of the most insightful human people I've ever met. And he's a mm. champion for peace. Mm. And when he was 17 or 18 years old, uh, he was in a gang and he got into a gunfight and he killed the other guy. Mm. And he went to jail for 20 years. He got out after 10 years for being a model prisoner. He became a, um, he became a Muslim in prison. He has subsequently come out and become friends with the family of the man he killed. Mm -hmm. uh, I forget his last name now, but his friend Kadir is the brother of the man that he killed. Mm -hmm. And he and Kadir go and speak in schools and in mm -hmm. prisons together. Mm -hmm. And so what Will has taught me is it, what you just said is true for Will, then what's possible for me? <laughs> That's right. That's right. But Will had to confront the truth of what he had done unabashedly. With, and the crazy thing is hmm. this guy owns it. There's not, if you look at him in the eye and have a conversation with him, and I have, Right. There's no flinching. There's no wrapping it in some bullshit that it was his circumstance. There's no nothing. He owns what he did. He mm -hmm. fucking owns it. It's incredible. I don't know how you teach yourself to own that, but he does. Well, I think you start with the proposition that all, all human beings are fundamentally good. All human beings are born fundamentally good. What happens to them afterwards shapes their lives. And if you can get back to that fundamental goodness, I mean, this was the breakthrough for me in, in becoming a Buddhist, was the understanding that unlike everything I had ever been socialized before, which was that I was born less than zero, and I had to overcome my humanity in order to reach salvation. When I came to understand that because I was a human being, 
I have all of the potential for good. And here's another Carl Jung quote. I am not what has happened to me. I am what I choose to become. And in that power, in that agency, is everything I need to know. Amen. (laughs) Now, there's so much here. Um, At one point you write, why am I not saying what needs to be said? Mm. Mm. Or I think of what I wrote is, what am I not saying that needs to be said? Oh, excuse me. You're right. What, you, you know what you wrote better than I do. What am I not saying that needs to be said? Yeah. yeah. What am I well, not saying that needs to be said? Yeah. So I, I'll, I'll tell the story of that question, um, which was at, um, at some point um, in my 30s, I was struck by this uh, awful migraine. I grew up with migraines. And um, it was shortly after I started working with Fred Wilson in a partnership, he always blames himself. So I like to mention him whenever I tell this story. I'm just kidding, Fred. Love you, man. Um, and uh, I was struck by this migraine. And I went into therapy a couple of weeks afterwards after having all these neurology uh, treatments. It was a bad, bad headache. I mean, to the point where I was hospitalized for a week. And it was then that my therapist started asking me that question, which was, what am I not saying that needs to be said? And the not that needs to be said is a really important and liberating component because the, because there's so much that we do not say. Now, partially because we're protecting other people's feelings, partially out of tact and politeness, but oftentimes it's because of old learned behaviors from our childhood that we squelch what needs to be said. Um, the minute I began trying to teach myself to at least say it to myself if I wasn't going to say it out loud, I began to be able to work better with my migraines. And so I rarely have a headache now. It's incredible. They still show up. Yeah. But, but you unlock something. Well, the, the corollary questions that I unlocked were what's being said that I'm not hearing. Yes. And what am I saying that's not being heard? Yes. Okay. And those three questions. A lot of what we're saying, a lot, a lot of what we're saying is not being heard. That's right. Yes. That's right. And and if we have positional power, there's a lot of things that's being said. There are a lot of things being said that we pretend not to hear. Like, for example, the product doesn't work. Or like, for example, the customers really don't like us. Or we're running out of cash. I don't want to hear this. Right. No, we're crushing. We have like human protection systems that deflect those statements from us. <laughs> I was, you'll love this. So I was just, I'm going through a process right now with a successful company and sort of redesigning a new category with them, right? Mm-hmm. And we've been working on this for the better part of nine months. Mm-hmm. And we're getting ready to, you know, the missiles are in the silos. Shit's getting ready. Uh, all of a sudden, a senior executive in the company um, who's not in marketing says, uh, hey, wait a minute, I don't like this, and, and taps the brakes. And we have this meeting. And I said to him, I'll just call him Jimmy. Hey, Jimmy, the, the missiles are in the silos. 
we, we've been talking, we did our first workshop on this in, in August. Mm. It's fucking May. And he goes, what do you mean? I didn't know we were going to do any of this. Like you've been in half a dozen meetings over nine months. You didn't, he, to your point, he didn't, he was, I don't know where he was, man. He was not on the, he was just, oh, we're not going to be doing all that's just marketing bullshit. What I don't know what he thought, but he didn't think we were doing anything and it was going on in a very big way for nine months. No, he was, he was safe in his delusions. Yes. You know, uh, James was stunned Baldwin, when I said the missiles are in the silos. Yeah. Uh, James Baldwin said that uh, we're all constantly seeking havens of delusion, right? It's like, uh, yeah, everything's great. Everything's great. It's like, because we're just, we're, we're afraid. We're afraid to actually confront the reality of our lives. Havens of delusion. That's oh, fucking yeah. awesome. <laughs> now I wanted to touch with you. Maybe, uh, you mentioned positional power mm. and, um, I've had an interesting sort of set of uh, experiences around that because, of course, I've been in uh, uh, jobs where I had positional power and you could hire and fire people and spend lots of money and open offices or, you know, there's, when you're a senior executive in a serious company, there's a lot of quote unquote positional power. Um, and of course, today, and this has now been true for uh, 13 or so years, I don't have any positional power at all. Matter of fact, I got the opposite of positional power. Um, when I'm working with a company, just like I assume you, I'm an advisor, I'm a coach, I'm a consultant, I'm a whatever the fuck you want to call me. I'm a Sherpa, I'm a whatever it is, right? Mm. And so, a shaman. A shaman. Okay, I love, I love it. I like sensei too, but you know, yeah. that's a little self-aggrandizing. But I, anyway, the thing that is fascinating to me about that shift from having positional power to having no positional power mm. is. I like the not having positional power because at least for me, and you'll tell me how you think about it, there's a purity to it that's interesting to me, which is the only quote power I have is the power of my ideas, my ability to communicate and collaborate with people, um, to think and work with people, um, et cetera, because I can't hire them. I can't, I got no positional power, but yet, um, learning how to be effective, if I could call it that, in the absence of positional power, I think is a much more interesting thing than uh, being effective with personal power, positional power. Although I think learning to be effective with positional power is a very important thing. But I'm very curious what you think about that. Well, what comes to mind is that um, you're exhibiting influence and exerting power um, you may not be comfortable with this word, but we'll say through love, not through fear. Now, the love happens to be the love of creativity. The love happens to be in designing something beautiful. The love happens to be in the, in the sacredness of solving a problem, right? In collaboration, in having fun. That's the love part of it. Um, uh, when we lead from a place of love, um, we allow the fruition of other people to come forward. So we allow all of that. But when we rely solely on positional power and, it's, and, it's, and, the, and the mallet that comes along with it of fear, do this or you'll be fired. Do this or you'll be demoted. Do this or you'll be thrust out of the tribe. 
then um, we create toxicity in your organization. Um, it is um, incredibly powerful to be able to influence because of the power of your ideas. Yes. Not, not as a result of some structural positional authority that was externally generated and could just as easily be taken away from you. Yes. And the, there's an interesting dichotomy to this in my head. And maybe you'll tell me if this is too esoteric, but you can't get too esoteric for me. So. <laughs> <laughs> the interesting thing is on one hand, there's a bit part of my brain that says, wow, I wish you knew that. And I wish you had the skills that you have today when you had positional power, because you would have been, you know, Mm. much more powerful, much more effective. And I always tried to be somebody is with positional power to, to um, uh, disarm people from the fact that it existed and to try to just be a human being with people. But, mm. you know, in spite of that, it's all, if you're walking around, you know, with an AR-15 on your back, even if you're not sort of pointing it at people, they know it's there. <laughs> mm -hmm. <laughs> and so there's a weird, the weird dichotomy is uh, on one hand, it would be nice to have known what I now know about that and have some of the skills that I have. Um, uh, but the reality is, I don't know if you get to mm. this place of being able to have no positional power and yet be incredibly effective if at least for me, and I don't know how it is for you, I had a track record of success as somebody with the positional power. In other words, I wouldn't be able to do what I do today if I hadn't had the 30-year experience as an entrepreneur and a CMO that I had, right? Well, there's two things probably going on with that. One is um, you're drawing upon wisdom, which is uh, knowledge plus experience, right? Two things come together. That's wisdom. That's the elderhood that you experience. That's good. But the other thing you're drawing upon, and you know, people do this to me all the time, you're, you're, you're utilizing their projections. So they look at your resume and they say, ah, success, success. Therefore, he's smart. Now, um, fine that they do that. It's also silly. Because how many successful, how many employees of successful companies are in fact incompetent, right? Thousands, Thousands. <laughs> millions, maybe. <laughs> right. And so, and yet, you know, we, we look at someone, it's just, and, you know, it's the same thing. And, you know, we look at somebody who has wealth and we presume, even though we know better intellectually, we presume they're intelligent. Yeah. What was the one, I was on a thread recently about this, um, how if you're, sort of strange and poor, you're weird. And if you're strange and rich, you're eccentric. Yeah. I mean, it's just, it's, it's, and really what we're doing when we do, when, when human beings do that, all we're doing is we're projecting the best and worst of ourselves onto the other person, making up a story about who they are and then using that. Now, what folks like, you and I might do, those of us who operate in, in a space without um, structural power, positional power in that way, and we'll acknowledge that we have a certain amount of power being who we are and the meat bags that who we are. But let's put that to the side for a moment. What we're doing 
if we're wise, is we're using their projected qualities onto us to be heard. My partner, Khaled, likes to say we smuggle in consciousness. So if they want to look at me and they say, ah, XVC, um, he must know, you know, Gimlet Media calls him the CEO whisperer. Okay, that's fabulous, fantastic. But tell me about your father. (laughs) (laughs) Tell me about your childhood, right? Um, The danger is when I start to believe the bullshit that is projected onto me. That's yes. what's dangerous. You, you, I'm, I'm assuming you've heard this expression. If you are not humble in life, you will be humbled by life. Amen. I like it. <laughs> <laughs> now, there's so much more. Uh, there's so much more in here, my God. Um, at the beginning of chapter four, remembering who you are, mm. uh, it just jumped right out at me. The bullshit stops here. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, it's, uh, and I think I tell the story of people coming to one of our multi-day experiences we call boot camps. And, um, you know, they arrive and they're usually in gorgeous places. I mean, we've done them in villas in Tuscany and this gorgeous facility here in Colorado and that sort of thing. And so they say, where's the boot camp aspect of it? You know, I have gorgeous sheets and good coffee and incredible views. And then the first night shows up and I, and I say to them, the bullshit stops here. Like all of the spinning, all of the pretending, all of the we're crushing it, that stops here. We actually have to tell the truth. And, you know, there's a Zen aphorism that I bastardize and I use all the time, which is this being so, so what? This is your life as it is right now. What do you choose to do about it? So when we stop the bullshit and stop the spinning, that's when we begin to choose what we want to do with our life. I love it. Now, a seminal question I want to ask you is, so you've written this quote business book and I say that, because you know, I smuggled in consciousness. <laughs> well, and so um, the the question I really have is, why do you want to, why do you have in this book, why do you have in your work a deeply personal conversation in the context of, I want to be a better CEO, I want to be a better leader, I want to be a better entrepreneur. Like the context of this is business. But the whole conversation that you have is personal. And what I love about that, and this is why I think it's courageous, there's this bullshit. I think work-life balance is an example of the broken paradigm, right? It, it, right. It, 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 there's an unspoken to that that says, there's my life and there's my work and the two things are not connected and, 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 right? And of course, it's bullshit. There's use cases of Jerry, but there's just Jerry. And our motivations are motivations, mm-hmm. I think, full stop. And so... The thing that's powerful, I think, about your book is it's supposedly a book about how I be a better leader, how I be a better CEO, how I be a better entrepreneur, how I be a better executive. But the truth is, it's how I be a better human being. That's right. And so why do you think you have to, to be a more effective, powerful executive, you have a, this work on yourself? 
Well, it feels like you answered your own question in the sense that there is the, the, the dichotomy that we have been socialized to believe exists is false. I don't know any human being who walks into the workplace and completely turns off worrying about their five-year-old son. Other than the extreme narcissists or those with personality disorders. I think the vast majority of people walk around with their wounds, walk around with their anxieties, walk around with their fears, walk around with all of the messages, and then it impacts everything that they do. And they pretend that's not going on. And every time we pretend, every time we buy into the false dichotomy, we die a little bit more. And then we go home and we knock back a fifth of Jack. And we perpetuate the violence. So there's that. There's another piece here, which, is, which comes down to this. I cannot stand listening to bullshit. I just can't. I, I'm too fucking old. And I see through things. And the last thing I was going to do was continue the art of bullshitting. Right? And so if I'm going to demand that the people in my life stop the spinning, stop the bullshitting, guess what I have to do? Right? I, I have to be willing to walk the talk. To walk the walk and talk the talk. Right? I have to put myself out there. Now, I have to walk a fine line. This is not a memoir. So if I tell a story about my life, it damn well better connect back to the point that I'm trying to make. So when I talk about growing up poor and admiring my grandfather and his ability to provide, it's so that I can unpack and help the reader unpack the experience of what is your relationship to money. You know, and this is, a, I think, you, a thing you do very well in the book. And I think it's something that maybe is misunderstood. I think there's people who think that um, people want to know all the shit about them. Mm. And, you know, there's certain things we want to know about other people, for sure. So there's, there's a certain amount of truth to that. Mm. Uh, and for the most part, even if it's somebody you really admire, you know, um, I don't know, Paul McCartney. How do you not, you know, it's interesting to hear about his life and all that stuff and it's cool. But even if you really admire somebody, it's at some point, it's not that interesting just in the context of sharing their life. Mm -hmm. Where it gets interesting for most people is you sharing your life mm -hmm. in a way that connects with me so that I can, if you'll allow me the, I've lived on the West Coast too long expression, uh, relate Mm -hmm. There's a humanity I now understand with Jerry. Mm -hmm. And so on one hand, you tell a personal story that is an interesting story. Mm -hmm. Another dimension to the story is there's a learning in the story. So you're not just a fucking Kardashian taking a selfie, mm -hmm. right? The opposite. You're, there's a, you're teaching in it. Mm -hmm. And as corny as it may sound to some, there's a human connection when you're being open and honest and, and authentic with people. Uh, that sort of the human being in me can connect to the human being in you. And now I'm much more receptive to continuing in this case to consume the book. Yeah. I, I, well, thank you for saying that. That's exactly what my intent was. And, and, you know, there's an image that I, that I write about in the afterward of the book in which I talk about the power of stories. And I have this image of us as a species way back millennia back when we're all just sort of sitting around the campfire at night 
as a tribe. And we're telling stories to make sense of the world because it's a really fucking scary place. And we tell, we make up stories about heroes and heroines and we make up stories about monsters and we make up stories about our childhood and we make up stories about who we are and who we yearn to be. And it's those powers of stories that bring us together as a community and bring us together. It's like, this is my story. What is your story? That's a much more interesting question than what do you do? Yeah. It's funny. It's funny. <laughs> Jerry, at a cocktail party, when I meet somebody, that's the opening question I most often ask, which is, so what's your story? Right. Because right. what I'm hoping to do is make it as much of a, you know, in sales terms, we call them, of course, open probes and closed probes. And mm-hmm. right as, as much of an open question as possible mm-hmm. so that they can feel free to tell me about their children mm. or that they love surfing or, or their job or whatever the fuck. What, Cause when you say, tell me your story or they could tell me about their child, they can do whatever they want with that, that question. Right. Can't they? Right. I, it, the, the thing I would, I would um, speak to though, is that when those who hold positional power are willing to share their story, they make it safe for others. And when I write a book, I'm in a position of power. Because I'm yes. the leader in that moment. Yes. So. Yes. Now, Jerry, I want to be respectful of your time. I could talk to you for 12 hours. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, one other thing maybe, and then anything else you want to touch on, what is the difference you hope that um, this book makes? Well, you know, you, at the start of this conversation, you held up your book with post-it notes sticking out of it. Here's the difference. I would like you at some point in five or 10 years when you are at that cocktail party and someone tells you their real story and you then turn and say, boy, do I have a book for you? Here's my dog-eared copy. And this book moved my in such a way that it helped make things a little easier for me. Maybe it'll do the same for you. That's my wish. That's awesome. Anything else you want to touch on before we wrap, Jerry? Nothing, just to tell you how much I enjoy your work and how much I enjoyed this conversation. I Thank feel you. like I found a brother. Yeah. yeah. See? See? But remember, I'm the older, wiser, and more handsome one. Way more handsome. <laughs> Way more handsome. Just remember that. I'm, 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 I'm clear about that. I have a face for uh, podcasting. <laughs> and, and one last thing. So I'm with you, brother. Yeah, we got we got we got, we got lots in common. Yeah, yeah. Um, so hey, listen. The other thing, I'll I'll invite you anytime you're out here. I I would love to see you. Where is here? Here is uh, Santa Cruz. Oh, in the Silicon Valley. I'll be there in October. It's at fourteen forty, and nice. December. Yeah, yeah. Well, I would love to see you. Um, I will I will drop you a line so that we can have a cup of coffee and shoot the shit. Yeah, and anytime you want to come back, I'd love to have you back. Uh, And I want to just deeply thank you for this book. It's a fantastic piece of work. Thank you. means a lot to me. Um, The honesty and authenticity that you have says to me, I hit the right nerve. I hit the right chords. I I don't know who this is going to speak to. I think it's going to speak to a lot of people. Um, But you have done what I think the people that most of us admire do which is you have broken and taken new ground. Thank you. Thanks, Jerry. 
All right. Be well. Take Thank care. You, Bye now. There he is, the CEO whisperer himself. Uh, I sure hope you enjoyed this conversation. And uh, if you want to get a hold of us, send email to uh, blackhole at lockhead.com. And um, if you want to check out what my nephew calls my weak social media game, by all means, uh, check me out on Twitter and on Instagram at Lockhead with two H's. And we do have an awesome website called Lockhead.com. Check it out. And while you're there, hit that subscribe button. Because even if you subscribe on a um, Apple Podcasts or Stitcher or Overcast or uh, Spotify or anything like that, we don't know you're there. Um, and so the only way we can have a direct relationship with you is if you head to lockhead.com. And while you're there, if you do set up, sign up for our uh, newsletter, we will send you um, the first chapter of my uh, most recent book, Niche Down, for free. And I promise you, we will only email you when we got something awesome. We won't email you anything we think is junk. <laughs> All right. We would like to thank this awesome new book, Reboot, Leadership and the Art of Growing Up by Jerry Colonna. Pick up a copy. You'll be glad you did. Uh, the good folks at One Life Fully Live. Check out onelifefullylive.org slash Lockhead for more information on our upcoming conference uh, in beautiful Long Beach, California. One Life is the organization helping you dream, plan, and live your best life. This is a family-friendly event and uh, great speakers, and we're going to help you design a legendary life. One of my absolute favorite podcasts, if you work in tech, um, you've got to listen to Grumpy Old Geeks with Jason DeFilippo and Brian Schulmeister. And, uh, you know, if, if you're also somebody who appreciates Grumpy, <laughs> these guys are grumpy and they're smart and they're funny. GrowWire.com. This is where entrepreneurs are uh, soaking up incredible content on how to grow themselves and grow their businesses. Uh, there's an awesome podcast. There is a YouTube channel. Check out GrowWire.com. Maybe the greatest entrepreneurial story ever. John's Crazy Socks. It's episode 155 of Legends and Losers. And uh, more importantly, why are you wearing boring socks? Go to johnscrazysocks.com and pick yourself up something legendary. My good friends at Positive Marketing. Uh, if you are in Europe and you want to do legendary marketing in the UK and Europe, these are your folks. And Positive Marketing also works very closely with uh, uh, US-based technology companies breaking into the UK and Europe. Check out positivemarketing.com. HarperCollins Instant Classic Play Bigger, my first book, How Pirates, Dreamers, and Innovators Create and Dominate Markets. Pick it up anywhere you get legendary books. Uh, the awesome folks at Bottleneck Virtual Assistants. Why not get yourself back some time and leverage the power of a virtual assistant? Check out bottleneck.online. And if you're in the B2B space in Silicon Valley, uh, you know that the first thing somebody does when they're interested in you is they Google you. And that makes your website one of the most important assets you can have. My friends at Atranet build legendary B2B uh, corporate websites in Silicon Valley. Check out atre.net. And don't forget the incredible work of the Front Row Foundation. These folks work with people who are facing life-threatening conditions and diseases to give them a, uh, an experience they'll never forget. Uh, I've been involved for a little bit. I know John Broman, the founder, he's been on this podcast. And I'll tell you, when you help make possible a life-changing experience for somebody who's facing the end of their life, it's a very powerful thing. Check out my friends at frontrowfoundation.org. 
All right, I need to remind you that this podcast is the sole property of the Lockhead Oddcast Network, and we'd love it if you shared the shit out of it. We must warn you, however, all rights do remain perturbed. And uh, this podcast is clearly created in a studio that does contain nuts. It's produced by the nicest man in podcasting, Jamie J. Edited by Sarah Parrish and Mike D. Show notes by Roan Nostros. And newsletter by Karen and Christine Anahog. Don't forget to teach yourself radical self-inquiry. Hey, man, that suit is you. Don't be lame. Get out of the passing lane. Listen to the Tragically Hip. Don't forget to share podcasts. Introduce two people you love to two podcasts you love. I am continually amazed at how many people I meet of all kinds of ages and stages of life who don't even know what a podcast is or or haven't uh, experienced one. So be a podcast legend and turn people on to podcasting. Thank you, Candy Dandy. I love you, Mom and Dad. And hey, Colin, this oddcast really ties the room together, doesn't it? Our deepest apologies today go out to Elizabeth Holmes, uh, former CEO of Theranos. Sorry, Lizzie, we just ran out of time for you. That's it, my friends. Thank you so much for investing part of your life with me. I, I really do appreciate it. Stay legendary. And until we're together again, follow your difference.